0: Welcome to the Keeping Kids Safe podcast. My name is Karen Cohn. I am the co founder of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety. This is your number one resource for all things related to your child's emotional, physical, and social well being. Now, I'd like to introduce my co host and my friend, the executive director of the Zach Foundation for Children's Safety,
1: Megan Ferraro. Hi, Megan. Hi, Karen. So excited to welcome Dr. Ben Hoffman to the podcast today. Dr. Hoffman is a nationally recognized expert in child passenger safety and leader in the field of community health and advocacy training for residents. He is a professor of pediatrics at Dornbacher Children's Hospital and Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Hoffman is also currently the chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Injury, Violence and Poison Prevention He remains active in child health policy and community advocacy. Ben and his wife, Jane, are most proud of their three hilarious kids, although technically all of them are adults. Welcome to the podcast, Ben.
2: I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for joining us here at the National Water Safety Conference in Texas. And you just gave this amazing presentation Thank you so much for that. And we're so happy, actually, to have you now as part of our drowning prevention team, <laughs> officially, right?
2: I'm, I'm sad that we need to have a team, but I'm really excited to get to know other parts of this universe that I haven't been connected to and to, to do the hard work that we need to do to save kids.
1: Yeah, so what does that hard work look like right now?
2: Oh, where do we even start? I mean, I think to me the most glaring thing is the, is the absence of data. The All of the questions that we have about how we prevent drowning and how we ensure that this doesn't happen to kids, um, there just hasn't been a lot of research. And the last really significant study on child drowning prevention was published in 2009. And, you know, there hasn't been funding. There is not a big, robust research community, like there is in other aspects in injury prevention around, you know, child passenger safety and car seats and even firearms right now, there's more, there's, there's more activity in the realm of firearm injury prevention, even though, you know, there were federal prohibitions against funding for a number of years. Um, it just seems to me, you know, that injury prevention in general is sort of an orphan in the world of child health. Um, and that, you know, unintentional injuries are by far the leading cause of death for kids across all age groups. Um, but that drowning is sort of, it's, you know, in that orphanage, is sort of the loneliest, saddest orphan in the corner. And especially, you know, representing the single leading cause of death for kids one to four and the second, uh, leading cause of unintentional death for older kids. We need to be paying more attention to it. And we need to do that by asking the questions and finding the answers.
1: So it sounds like you're talking about research and being able to identify data to support some of these claims.
2: Yeah, I think that it's it's hard to make recommendations about how we go forward without understanding what the path looks like. And to me, you know, I say this as a as a physician that it has to begin and end with data. Um, you know, I think things like this conference, like the the, um, the the work that's done by the advocates at the community level, is Absolutely essential, but we need to get together, um, and identify priorities, find the resources, and ask and answer the questions, and continue the grassroots work and the and the work you know that bubbles all the way up to to what I call big P policy. Um, to be able to you know when when we think about injury prevention for kids, we think about in general three E's: engineering, education, and enforcement. So engineering is automatically. Protecting, building things to prevent things from happening in the first place that don't require a lot of activity. Pool fencing is a really good example of that. Um, enforcement is effective policy that that helps change behavior, and then the education piece. But we can't do that unless we know what the right things to do are, and we need and we need the data for that.
1: Right. So many of us in drowning prevention feel like we want to work more closely with pediatricians to have them educate parents, whether it's at the time that they're bringing their children home, some think that that education should begin before the child comes home from the hospital. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how people listening to the podcast can talk to their pediatricians about water safety or where they can find water safety resources through the AAP?
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with the second part first. So the, the AAP has gotten much more engaged in the issue of drowning prevention um, over the last several years, I think absolutely positively for the better. Um, we partnered together uh, with families and some of the, the drowning prevention advocacy groups to develop um, resources for pediatricians and families that are on, at aap.org slash drowning backslash drowning and um, and we're working on opportunities to to continue to engage pediatricians at a more effective level. Um, you know, the AAP cannot tell pediatricians what to do; that's not its role. Um, we can, however, work on education for pediatricians. We can work on resources that can help drive the change in practice. You know, I will tell you as a as a pediatrician that's been practicing for over 25 years. You know, I've got my shtick, I've got my spiel, and my stuff that I talk about, and it's, you know, it, it's, we get used to it, and we have a limited amount of time, and so affecting that change, getting something to rise up to a, a level that's important enough to change what somebody's been doing for years and years and years can be challenging. Um, I think, you know, for a lot of people, the, the realization that drowning is the single leading cause of death, for because one to four comes as a surprise, um, and that's the kind of thing that can help drive some urgency in that change. But I think we need to do it in ways that that meet pediatricians where they are. And if you think, I, I will say this as a pediatrician, you know, in terms of my continuing education, if we can align some of the the change that we want to see with things that we already have to be doing around, you know, continuing medical education and maintaining board certification, which actually now includes doing actual quality improvement work within our own practices, that if we can align with that, that that's a way that we can we can get this issue elevated in a way that's not going to be onerous and may may um, be adopted a little with a little more easily that's
1: so interesting
0: And then one of the things that you talked about was just the challenge of time and how there are so many things that pediatricians want to be talking about with their patients during the you know the well visits. How do you think that, Are there are there any thoughts that you have around how to change that to make drowning prevention and water safety more you know rise to the top of that list?
2: Yeah, so I think you know I I, I'm I'm a general pediatrician and I think for me the most effective visits that I have with families are ones where I ensure I focus on them their questions and their needs Mm -hmm. and I feel like you know my agenda is secondary, Um, not far behind right. Um, so number one is it needs to be on your, it needs to be on the agenda of pediatricians in the same way that, you know, we talk about injury prevention. We talk about how to, you know, transitioning from exclusive breastfeeding to, you know, to weaning off a bottle or going from, you know, exclusive breastfeeding to purees and that sort of stuff and working on toilet training. You know, we need to incorporate issues of injury prevention in general, more robustly into what we do with families. Um, and we need to do that, but, but we need to do that in the way that meets the family needs too, because families have to be ready to hear what we talk about. Um, you know, it's one thing for me to say it. It's another thing for it to be heard. And that means that it needs to be the right parent at the right point, you know, with the right level of interest. And if I can't guarantee that I've addressed all of their concerns and their needs first, they're not going to listen. You know, I, I worry that they're not, that they may not hear what I have to say. Um, so I think there are multiple layers there. I think, you know, part of, and I talked about this in my, in my talk, I had six months of training in taking care of kids with cancer when I was in my, you know, in the 30, in the three years of my pediatric residency, I remember maybe one lecture on injury prevention, maybe, but I'm not hundred percent certain. So I often will say, I don't remember any, um, you know, it certainly wasn't that the amount of education I had was not commensurate with the, with the degree of the epidemic that we see around child injury. And it's, you know, and nowhere is it more true in drowning.
0: You also talked about the, how, you know, the amount of time that you're even given yeah. based on insurance, right? Right.
2: So we in general, you know, with a well child check, we'll have between twenty and thirty minutes, you know, sometimes a little bit longer if it's a new patient. But there's a lot of stuff that we need to get out And again, I've got to follow you know, my first agenda is making sure I meet the needs of the the child and the family. Um, and if, you know, the conversation takes a shift towards something that, that is of great concern to them or something that we need to address, I may not be able to get, even I, you know, who now always talk, you know, I, 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 have, I think my whole career talked more about injury prevention than anybody I know mm-hmm. um, or, or as much as anybody I know. Um, you know, I make sure that I talk about water safety with each visit, but sometimes I can't get to it because it's just too much. There's too much other stuff that we have to do. I think it needs to be on the list and it needs to, you know, we need, we need to acknowledge it, um, to this in a way that represents the, the severity of the problem, the the just raw numbers. It's just such a big deal and it just flies under the radar. So,
0: and that list, we couldn't even read there were so many items on it.
2: Yeah. There's there's a lot that we Really long. There's a lot that we need to do. And you know, I don't don't get me wrong. Toilet training's a big deal, right? An effective discipline for, you know, eighteen, twenty-four month children and you know as parents, that's a big deal.
1: I could use some tips on that right now. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, but if it's not if it's not even you know, if it's not even on the list of things that we would do if we had time, then it's never gonna happen. And that's that's where I think the challenge is
0: do you feel like you have a good group of people that you're working with within the Academy of Pediatrics?
2: Yes, absolutely. And I think we're all very motivated. You know, they, I, for those of us who have been engaged in injury prevention work, we always feel like we've been standing in the corner forever yelling and saying, "You know, hey, come pay attention to this, come pay attention to this. And I do feel, and the Academy has always been incredibly engaged in the work of injury prevention. Um, and the role of pediatricians and child health providers in general in the advocacy work, whether it's, you know, individual advocacy in a room with a family to, you know, working with, with communities to, to have broader impact all the way up to, to legislative and policy level things. Um, you know, that's always been part of the identity of pediatricians and definitely a role of the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think elevating that a little bit more and making it more visible, um, and integrating it more, like I said, into the normal flow, not just of an individual visit, but the normal flow of education from, you know, the beginning of medical school through the rest of one's career. Um, and being able to adapt to changes um, so that we're, you know, we're staying on top of the most current epidemic. I think this is a really interesting period in time where we've, we we did not know a lot. We still don't know a lot of what the right thing to do with COVID is or was. Right. Right but we adapted and we because we had to. And I think we have gotten, um, I, I think we all get a little bit complacent around the issue of injury in general and drowning in specific because it's hard. And it's been that way for a long time, even though we've made progress, right? We've not made the progress that we need. And one kid drowning is too many. Um, But it just seemed, you know, I, and, and this is something I talked about in the in the presentation as well. If it were easy, we would have done it. Um, You know, there are so many different levers that we need to be moving to be able to affect this. And it's just sort of hard to know. It's hard to start with start gaining momentum. I feel like we're at a point now where we've gained some momentum and we're at least rolling now. Mm -hmm. Um, And now the real hard work starts. We've got to dig in and figure out how to actually address it.
1: So we saw that AAP came out with new guidelines around when swimming lessons should begin for kids. I know when I had my first, I think the recommendation was that swimming lessons should begin at age four. Yes. And now can you tell us what has changed?
2: Yeah, so in the, the, the last iteration of the AAP recommendations, the policy statement was in 2010. Um, and that is just after a study had been released um, that looked at the... Potential role of of some swim instruction, water safety instruction for kids between the ages of one and four, um, and it was it was that was that data was not able to be incorporated in the policy statement just because of the timing. Mm. Um, and to be honest, the policy statement it it had been tabbed to be updated because there there are very strict rules about policy statements in the academy and reviewing things and figuring out. What you do with it, whether you need to rewrite it, whether you just say, "Okay, what we have is the best we're, we're going to get at the time, the current time," or we need to get rid of this, mm-hmm. um, and part and, and for a variety of reasons, it just sort of was on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, and in twenty eighteen, we we were able to take a hard look at it and gain the momentum that we needed to actually change things. And we're able to incorporate that study from 2009 that showed that there was not that, that showed that there was positive effect. There was benefit of, of some swim instruction between the ages of one and four. Now I can't tell you what that means.
1: Mm, I was just going to ask, what does that mean? Yeah. (laughs) It,
2: it, it, I mean, the way the study was done is they just, they, they did they surveyed. They they did interviews with families who had lost children to drowning, and then they did families who were what, what are called matched controls. So families who came from similar backgrounds with similar age kids and similar circumstances, and looked and asked questions about circumstances. You know, do you have a pool? Um, you know, where was where was the water exposure? Did you have did your child have any swim instruction? And. Based on that, that's called a case control study. And based on that, they showed that, that children who had not had any swim instruction were at higher risk for drowning. Kids who had parents identified they'd had some swim instruction, some water safety training, had a lower risk for drowning.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and we felt like that was that, – that the even though the numbers were relatively small, there definitely was a benefit. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you 100% how great the benefit was, mm-hmm. um, but there definitely was a benefit – um, and there was no evidence of harm, which to me is the most important. you don't want to recommend something that's actually going to make it worse. Right. Um, and so we, as a, as a group and as, and as the Academy ultimately, cause everything that, that my counsel writes goes through multiple levels of, of vetting to ensure that it, that it's the best available science and that what we're saying is, you know, as close to right as it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt comfortable going forward with that, um, because You know that's what the science showed, Um, and we that was a huge step forward.
1: It was. Now, is there a a qualifier around what types of swim instruction are best for ages one to four?
2: We don't know that, and I think that's one of it's one of the many, many, many questions that are out there that we need to know. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it just we absolutely have to know that.
1: You know, and I don't know
2: what makes a one-year-old ready versus a four-year-old, and that this study was not designed to answer those questions. The study was simply to get at. I mean, it really was, it was focused on first, is it harmful? Mm -hmm. Because there was a, there, there is a, there was a belief or a concern that kid, you know, exposing kids to swimming pools that early might actually increase the risk because maybe, you know, that parents let down their guard or, and and they're differently vigilant or, you know, kids take different risks because they feel more confident. So it really was more about answering the question, is this harmful? Mm. But it actually showed that it's beneficial.
1: Interesting.
0: So uh in terms of getting that type of information would you then have like create an additional case study for what types of lessons you would recommend or I mean I think
2: in order to get there so first of all I think from the academy standpoint it's we you know it's going to it's going to be around skill acquisition I think and not specifically what type of lesson but what to kids you know what skills do kids need to demonstrate to be able to be safe Mhm um, and at what age, I think, you know, very mindfully staying away from endorsement of any one specific curriculum. type of lesson yeah, because you've got to be very yeah. careful about that. Of course. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, thinking about developmental differences in kids and, and all of mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, I think it get, that gets very complicated, which is part of why I think it hasn't been done because those studies... You know, that would be, it. that's a big study with, a, it would require a lot of data, which means a long collect, you know, a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Part of what's challenging is that even though drowning is a leading cause of death for kids one to four, it's still thankfully relatively rare. Mm. Um, right. And you can't, one of the challenges is you can't prove something because it didn't happen. Right. 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 Um, you know, how many, I I know, you know, right now, for example, there's a lot of interest in the issue of flotation devices and, you know, drowning risk associated with them, you know, if if they're used in, in, during water time and then, you know, not later on and, right, right, you know, but how many drowning events didn't happen because a child was wearing a flotation device, right, it's super complicated, it's kind of thing that makes my head spin,
1: right, I know, mine too, because I have, I bought my first puddle jumper two weeks ago, not because I necessarily intend to use it, but because I wanted to really get my hands around the messaging that we're, you know, trying to help redirect around the puddle jumpers, for example. But I know that when I'm at the pool on the weekends, nine out of 10 families are using puddle jumpers, the 10th family that's not using it being me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I worry about this, um, Idea that if we kind of push back against these flotation devices, that these families won't come to the pool, right? They may not come to the pool, use them, and then the risk increases, right?
2: Right, Right. or you know, and maybe there's benefit. We don't know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's where that's where we have to come back to. We have to rely on the science, and we need people. You know, we need. We're at a point in time where that, and I I think I've mentioned this before, that the bench is really thin. There just has not been a robust community of of drowning prevention researchers, it's growing and there are some, there's some amazing people, brilliant people out there who are really, who are really digging in on it, but we, it's just not been part of the culture. Right. And we need that to change.
1: Yeah. And it feels like we're seeing that change. You know, we have, yeah. um, some relationships with some, you know, individuals who are young and who are getting their PhD in drowning prevention. And it's so exciting to see this journey, um, unfold I've been doing this for 12 years and this space looks so different today than it did when I first started and it's exciting to see what's to come especially with the national action plan and all the research recommendations that will be coming out of that
2: right and I think a lot of the credit for that goes to it has to go to families who are who you know who have suffered unbelievable losses and are willing to share their stories and and to fight um, but to do that, you know, in a way where you know, we're all aligned on this. We all want the same thing. Um, so building, you know, building those bridges and making sure that everybody is, you know, lockstep, arm in arm, moving towards the same goals. And I feel like we're headed in that direction in a, in a very different way than than we've been, at least during my experience. It feels all really positive.
1: I agree. Yeah, it
0: does for us too. Yeah, Yeah. You know, we definitely had we felt resistance early on and we are definitely feeling like there's a more cohesive environment and we are finally convincing more people to take it seriously. Yeah. And, you know, we definitely, even with the work with the national water safety action plan and some of the community drowning prevention action plans that we've been working on, we are, are definitely seeing communities that are, you know, that have these key stakeholders that really want to make a difference. And, you know, they're the ones that know what it is that the, they're doing in their community already and what they can be doing. And so we just hope that on a national level, we can also create something where um, we're going to get, we're really going to move the needle on the drowning prevention work.
2: Yeah. And I think that I think, you know, national agendas are important. I, you know, I think we need to listen to communities about what their priorities are. And we need to look at and, you know, going back to data, we need to look at what the, you know, what happens to kids in different communities, because, you know, I said this in my presentation as well, that all drowning is local. And that, you know, what happens in in, you know, Florida is completely different than what happens in the state of Washington.
1: Absolutely. And we've, we're finding that in our community drowning prevention action plans, an issue that exists in St. Louis, which happens to be one of the key issues is transportation is not, does not come to the surface in our central Texas plan or our Chicago plan. Um, and we recently helped develop a California water safety coalition and I don't, we just had a summit two weeks ago and I don't think transportation came up once, um, during that summit. And so it's so interesting to see how it's
2: Right, but my guess—I mean, California is like six states. So my guess is, if you right. dug in a little bit and looked at you know specific communities, transportation is going to be an issue, and that you know, it, and I think that's where we just need to be mindful to ensure that the right vo- that the voices mm-hmm. are representative, um, and it's representative right. of the diversity of risks, the diversity of communities, the diversity of access to resources, mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. And we're really thinking about it through the lens of equity because every kid you know, deserves the same level of protection from the water.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Is Every child and adult. Yeah. yeah.
1: You. <laughs> yeah. You're
2: absolutely Not right. that you're
0: excluding them, but yeah, it's, um, right.
2: well, I'm, I'm a pediatrician. That's right. Um,
0: exactly. it's, kids, it's kids first. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. <laughs> we love and that. And that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so is there anything we haven't asked you about drowning prevention that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: So I I think I want to go back to something we talked about before in terms of how do you engage pediatricians? I think it's always okay for families to ask, um, because that's something that often motivates me. I realize I have, you know, we all have blind spots. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's, it's always okay to ask, you know, I read, you know, I know that drowning is a risk for my child. Do you have, you know, do you have a sense of what the risks are in this community or, um, you know, do you, I just wanted to like, do you talk about this with families? Right. Um, don't put them in a position of being defensive. Um, but you know, being honestly engaging and, and really trying to help us grow, I think is okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reaching out to, um, state chapters of the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, pediatric societies and, and state chapters is also a really nice, opportunity for, for advocates, um, because those chapters are always, you know, they're, they're much more connected to their community in a way that the national AAP just can't be as a national organization. Um, and I think, you know, with, you'll find the right people. Um, and I would, I would urge people to do that if this is your passion, um, you know, work on connecting to the, the right folks and help spread that in a, you know, in a way that will, um, be supportive, and, um, you know, can really be transformative.
1: That's great advice. Um, so we ask all of our guests if they have any any interesting hobbies. So, for example, my pediatrician came on and he shared with us that he plays the accordion. I've known the man for 12 years. I didn't know that. So <laughs> <laughs> anything any fun hobbies? Yoga, running, so the my, accordion. My
2: my favorite thing, my favorite, my, my real relaxation activity and, and hobby is cooking. Um, I just find something really, uh, therapeutic about like the prep. I love nothing more like my favorite weekend is just going to the farmers market and you know sort of playing Iron Chef, um, and then coming back with stuff and figuring out what to do with it. Um, and it, this gets back to I think this it's the same thing that that drives me to be a pediatrician is that it all comes from, you know, it's all about love for kids. Um, and I think that food is a, is, you know, there's, there's an art to food that really does, um, represent love and that to me, you know, that's, that's part of how my, I, you know, the household I grew up in, that's how of that's part of how love was expressed. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was done together. We, you know, my, my mom was really good about engaging there. I have three siblings, all of us, and sort of the, the ritual of, picking and preparing food, and that's just become important to me. So I really love doing that.
1: Any particular cuisine?
2: Um, no, I'll try anything. I'm not <laughs> quite as good with um, with Southeast Asian flavors yet. I, like, I love them, and I love to eat them. It just doesn't, I, I'm not as good with that sort of uh, generally. I'm pretty good with like Mediterranean flavors, like that stuff I can, you know, I don't need recipes. I just like to play with them. Yeah, it's just fun. That's just that's just a source of joy for me. Wonderful.
0: I bet can't you're... play the accordion for my life. <laughs> me either. And I bet your family really appreciates that. I'd like to think so.
2: I think they <laughs> they, they suffer through some mistakes. But they're
0: very kind. That's okay.
1: <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, and for all of you who are listening. Um, reminder to visit the American Academy of Pediatrics website at aap.org backslash drowning.
0: Thanks so much for being here with us today.
2: Thank you. This has been a blast.
1: (laughs) So I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would please um, rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share with your friends and family, we would be so grateful. And with that, have a great week and we'll talk with you soon.